Hey guys, welcome back to the BMS podcast. With us today is Mark Sankey, along with myself, Clayton Ferry. In today's podcast, we will be discussing specifying high-performance open systems. Now, I think a great starting point for the listeners would be, what do you consider, Mark, to be a high-performance open system? It seems like a very broad spectrum. Um, I don't know if we could narrow it down a little bit or stick with it pretty open. No, I... I don't think we should try and narrow it down. I think let's try and be definitive as to what we expect from a high-performance open system. So an open system, well, we may in fact be marrying or integrating systems from different manufacturers, but we still have the same kind of performance requirements for the man-machine interface, for the controllers, for the control loops. And basically, when we look at the performance of the system, we look at it from the highest level to the lowest level. So that might be in a large system, the campus level, or if it's only a building, the building level. So the system should be able to provide control and information at the campus level. Then at the system level, the chilled water system, the boiler plants, the air handling units, same thing, provide diagnostic information, provide management information as to how those systems are performing. Are they performing within their energy performance tolerances? Are they performing within their environmental tolerances, et cetera, all the way down to the individual control loops. Are the PID loops stable? Are they cycling? Do they have the capability embedded to be able to self-diagnose, that is tell the system operators when there's an unstable control loop or if a device is not responding properly. So from a high performance system in a static mode, meaning we isolate it from other potential future engagements or future expansion, that's what we expect. And then as we start to uh, design for high performance, we want to additionally embed not only the requirements I just talked about, but the ability to expand and to modify the system going forward without excessive additional cost. Right. So just to, I guess, take a step back and and break it down for the listeners that maybe don't understand, basically a high-performance open system could consist of two air handlers or 200 air handlers and a whole bunch of other different types of equipment. But what did you mean by talking about it at the campus level performance-wise? Well, at the at the campus level, typically you might have one, ten, fifty, a hundred buildings. Those kinds that level of system will provide so much information that it's important that that data be rolled up, aggregated into usable information by multiple levels within the organization. The energy manager, for instance, will only require specific information about period-over-period performance, year-over-year, month-over-month, corrected for weather changes, corrected for building occupancy, et cetera, to be able to understand are their buildings performing to the energy expectations which they have set forward or set forth and uh, simply looking at that. And it would be maybe not required for them to be able to dive into an individual control loop, but certainly they may want to drill down to the system level, central chilled water plant, for instance, or a central steam or hot water plant or a central geothermal plant, 
to be able to determine what specific systems are consuming energy. At the maintenance level or the operations level, much more granular information is required where they may be looking at problematic areas and require individual trending uh, trending values for specific PID loops that have been problematic or recently installed to be able to determine if the control loops are stable, are they maintaining set point, are they cycling and really providing the illusion of a stable control loop while the operators are opening and closing on a minute-to-minute or uh, hour-to-hour basis. So that kind of level segregation within a control system that large is very important. And that's typically done in the software or the dashboarding or the HMI using both historical data and real-time data from the BMS. Right. So we essentially, we want a system that can control at the equipment level all the way up to the, like you said, the campus level and be able to aggregate that data. So you can go in and see what is my building doing? What is my chilled water system doing? What is my air handler doing? Um, all the way down to what, what are the valves doing to, you know, control each control loop? What is my VAV box doing? You know, it can be that simple. What is my radiation system doing? What are my chilled beams doing, et cetera? And all of that, now that's pretty high level overview, but all of that's done with a requirement for, especially at the campus level or large system level, very high level network security, very high level data throughput in systems that have 20, 50, 100,000, 200,000 points plan for the plan for and the specification of data throughput requirements, both for construction of uh, the network and the network infrastructure, and also for the controller performances, the, the importance of understanding that can't be understated. Right. So, you know, for the listeners, you obviously have been in the industry for quite a quite a long time, and you've specified, I couldn't even tell you, I could imagine a lot of different high-performance open systems. So I would consider you definitely a subject matter expert. And I understand there's probably, there's a right time to get involved in the process. And then there's reality sometimes. When, when do you typically get involved in the, the process of specifying high-performance open systems? In general, at the concept level, when owners begin to talk about it, uh, that I would say that's more than 75% of the time. And is that the right time? Yes. Okay. And it is the right time because there is so much misinformation or disinformation about open systems and how they are engineered. And in many cases, specific manufacturers or vendors will attempt to engineer or sell a system that isn't either necessarily open nor high performance. And obviously owners are very required to be fiscally responsible and through the process where we evaluate the existing systems and existing networks, et cetera, and the existing equipment, our objective is to be high value. That is, spend your money as wisely as possible, get the most performance you can for it, and plan for the future. So there are instances where we've been brought in much later than we would preferred all the way through the stage where a project has already either been put out to bid or a project has been put out to bid and actually awarded 
and the owner or the occupant of the building is trying to set a course which may not be one that is compatible with the contract that they've already signed so right unwinding a situation like that is a little more challenging because at that point you're trying to manage the expectations of the owner within the constraints of what has already been documented or contracted for yeah right no that makes sense so the ideal situation is like you said concept level so we can ensure the owner knows what they want and then you can write a specification around what they need and what they want and what is fiscally responsible as well in most cases so could you dive into a little bit more of what the steps are once you're involved in the process so yeah i guess you know you get involved in at the concept level we start talking about what does your facility have what do you want or what do you need and what could, can you do maybe I, I assume there's probably physical and many other restraints depending on the facility and what they do just like a quick overview of what i don't know you consider like the the broad the steps required in the process sure let me just walk that back owners many times don't know what they want or they have a very high level understanding of here's what i think i want uh, based on either interactions with vendors or what they've read or what they through other uh, trade organizations have heard other people experience but the steps that we undertake are basically to largely evaluate the current state of the system is it a is it current hardware and software? Is it end of life hardware and software? Does it need to be replaced in its entirety? Does it need to be upgraded for integration of more equipment? And what is reusable? The traditional A&Es and sometimes vendors use a rip, tear it out and replace it is the standard. And that may include non-wear, non items that don't necessarily degrade wiring for instance network interfaces even some sensing devices uh, where we've been in facilities where very high level high-end sensing devices have been used and they may be five six seven years old but in general those don't wear out safety devices such as smoke detectors high limit thermostats low limit thermostats that were installed when the system was originally constructed typically they don't wear out if they're tested they can be reused so the economies that are gained during the evaluation process of existing equipment that that money that is not spent on replacing serviceable very serviceable equipment can be redirected reused to provide additional functionality within the bms Right. And that's all. Those are great points. And I know we covered, I think, quite a few of those actually in some previous podcasts. So hopefully the listeners are up to speed a little bit on that. And a good point to sum up was the the field survey is huge. So that would be a, a essentially a first step once you get involved at the concept level. We need to go in and we need to see what do you have that is usable so we can get those economies from the system before we go in and design a uh, a new high performance open system around that, right? It, well, it is. And I, th I think I wouldn't necessarily call it the first step because we always 
really go back to generating the owner's project requirements as the first step. Okay. Yep. Our first step is to get out in the field and let's, now that we know what the owner is really expecting or mm-hmm. what it requires, then start the field survey and really jump in and, and start to review what is there and how does it operate and is it uh, reusable, not just for the next year, but ostensibly for two, five, ten, or more years. So the information you gather from the field survey is kind of dependent on what what we what we've decided the owner wants and needs in the owner's project requirements documentation. That's correct. Yep. And then what do you do? You do you put together when do you bring in your budget? Do you start with the budget? Do you do your field survey and say this is what you're working with and this is what it might cost? Well, that's you know Budget generation, I, I have to say, but typically our budgets that we provide to an owner are substantially less than uh, traditional A&E firms because traditional A&E firms mostly find it easier, faster to tear everything out or abandon it in place and build new. And, and the cost of that is, is high. And how many jobs have, have I been on where you see basically multiple sensors or multiple generations of sensors stuck on an air handler because each successive equipment manufacturer re-instrumented the air handler from start to finish. So I have three mixed air temperature sensors. One was pneumatic. One is a thousand ohm platinum RTD and the next one is a thermistor and all were doing the same thing but nobody took the time to evaluate what's reusable and what's not and consequently there are multiple layers of instrumentation on a system that's just uh, that's not an acceptable situation certainly if you specify a system and there are sensors already in place then it's a requirement that whatever's not used, not reused, be removed. But the traditional A&E firms, basically, uh, they omit that or ignore that requirement. So from a budget generation perspective, uh, what you typically see is what w- what's known as parametric estimating, where somebody says, oh, it'll be this many dollars per square foot or this many dollars per control point. And in either case, that's really not a a good methodology to use especially in control system retrofits where there is an intent or a thought process given to designing an entire system that from from start to finish that we know exactly what every single device will be that will be removed or replaced and every single controller that will be upgraded or integrated so when we estimate a budget um, it's a very they're very close budgets. Basically, we go all the way down to estimating the job system by system and providing a, a very close budget. So uh, moving a little bit past the the steps, right? I guess, you know, we broke it down to get started, you would consider it. I mean, you, once you get in, in in the conception phase, we would generate an OPR, owner's project requirements. Um, Utilizing that, we would conduct a field survey, identify what's in place, 
uh, what can be reused, what should be reused, what should be taken out, generate a budget. And then at that point, do you start, would, you know, do the engineering or do start writing the specification? I guess you. Well, the specification kind of falls hand in hand with other items that we would want to include in the either request for proposal or actual bid documents, which would include schematics, points, list, and sequence. But the specification really becomes part of the contract documents. So it's imperative that when you go through the spec sections, general products and execution installation, that as the writer, you have the mindset that you're writing a contract. And there are really two kinds of specifications for large-scale BMS or BMS integration or open systems. And one is what we call a performance spec, and the other is what we call a prescriptive spec. So a performance spec is more general, less specific, which is counterintuitive when we say we're writing a specification. But a form performance spec is the system shall control all spaces within plus or minus half a degree. Well, that's easy to do, but unless there are really stringent and crucial elements added to each PID, for instance, must be able to do, you know, a stable control loop with no cycling for a minimum of three minutes. You can control a space plus or minus a half a degree and still have a PID cycling a reheat control valve from zero to a hundred percent every 30 seconds. So the requirement to be what we term prescriptive is on the designer. The performance specifications are very subjective and really allow a lot of ambiguity into a contract, which if the owner has the intent to really have a high performance system, that ambiguity removes their tools slash levers in the contract that can drive a contractor to perform at a high level. Oh yeah. And you know, I've seen it or can see it happening. Like you can, there's a, I assume a lot of different ways to control things or to, you know, a lot of different configurations, a lot of different hardware, software to do this stuff. So I, I can imagine you would get somebody that wants to put in the cheapest stuff, for instance, that can control at that minimum performance. So A, you probably don't get the system you necessarily want. And B, it's hard to, like you said, it's hard to walk back once it's already done or installed and you realize this isn't what I expected or wanted. Well, it's even hard to walk back once it's out. it's been put out to bid. Because That's true. if you have a an ambiguous spec without specific performance requirements and specific requirements for what may or may not be in the network, what's required in the controller, how many, uh, how much spare capacity, how much spare memory, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It's very difficult once the project goes out to bid or it's, it's gone through in public projects or through procurement in private projects to walk back and try and leverage a, a manufacturer or a supplier into providing more or something that they interpret is not in the specification when, oh, everybody 
basically had it in their mind or we were all of the same consensus that this is what we want, but it's not in writing, then odds are you won't get it without opening your pocketbook again. Right. And so we're talking about performance spec and the other, the other option end of the spectrum is a, is a prescriptive spec, like you said, right? Yes. So it seems like in a, in what I have experienced in the industry is a prescriptive spec still has a fair amount of performance requirements within it, it right? It absolutely does, but it also has the prescription of specific methods, uh, specific means to accomplish that performance. For instance, one of the things that we specify regularly is position feedback on every device, be it a valve, be it a, an actuator, be it a VFD, et cetera, so that we actually can do diagnostics as to whether a control device is reaching its its uh, position within a finite measured period of time and whether it's stable at that position. There are other ways that you could conceivably accomplish that by Oh, we, we commanded the valve to 50% open. And then it's assumed that that valve is 50% open. Well, over time, a valve may start to stick, a valve may fail, and that command will continue to happen. And you won't know that if it's a chill water valve, for instance, that the valve's not opening to the required position until either we get a supply air temperature alarm or we get a space temperature alarm. So without being specific, without using that prescriptive spec that says this is what we require in terms of uh, position sensing, et cetera, you won't get it uh, without providing that in the points list. You won't get it. So instead of having a early alarm, you'll have a trailing alarm that might occur an hour, two hours, or a day later when you have an overheating space versus, oh, we have a valve that's failed because we know that the output command does not match the feedback. Right. And, you know, that obviously it having that mitigates a lot of problems. Like you said, instead of the space overheating or over, you know, any issue happening, it you can catch it before that does happen. And then once the space does overheat, someone's got to go in there and identify what the problem actually is. Whereas you you would know, oh, my valve was commanded to 70% and it's at 10 or what have you. You know, you'd have that status mismatch alarm and you'd know where to go and it would be the, the smoking gun per se. So that part, that part of what we just talked about would be written in the spec. What section would that be in of our three? Well, it would be, it's really, it's not uh, what section, it's, it, it really is the overall tenet and flavor of the specification, and it would impact all three general products and execution. Okay. You know, a execution spec that is performance-based versus prescriptive would basically leave the, the, um, execution up to the governance of the national electric code that sure it, it meets uh it, it's safe and it works but it doesn't add things like 
specificity of labeling, specificity of how wire poles are to be installed, whether there's pull strings in every conduit, whether you know everything is plumb and true to the building lines. And we've seen specs that are 15 pages or eight pages. And when we come back and turn the project around after we've been through a complete engineering process, that whole spec might be 60 pages, 80 pages, depending on how many pages of uh, points lists and sequences you might have. It might be 100 pages. So a, a, per, a performance spec is generally faster, easier. And what we find in many cases is that uh, manufacturers or system providers will assist in the construction of a specification by an A&E firm with the only prescription being the product manufacturers, which that is entirely untenable uh, to me as a, as a consultant and the, to our, our business because there's no point in writing a specification that names manufacturers without being very specific about what the performance requirements are for that same kind of product. So what you're saying is you don't want to write a spec around a specific manufacturer? Well, you don't want to write a spec around a specific manufacturer and then leave the absolute performance requirements unidentified. That right. I mean, that's just a recipe for disaster. And that recipe gets cooked up about four or five times a year that we see. And it's unfortunate, but it happens. It, it, it leads to, you know, when we talk about products, it leads to installation of products, which may or may not have embedded proprietary protocols, might have embedded proprietary MMI, might have embedded proprietary user tools that don't get turned over to owners and remain in the, in the hands of the installer or service company. So the prescriptive part of the specs that are important are uh, licensing, our performance, our additional spare system capacity, our uh, network communications protocols that are a hundred percent open. So there, there are prescriptive elements in hardware, in software, in networking, in end devices, in valve and uh, actuators and sensors that once incorporated become part of the contract and again become part of the levers and buttons that the owner slash commissioning agent might be able to use to help provide that high performance system when it's all said and done. Right. You're not writing a specification to allow one manufacturer to, to get in there and do whatever they want. You don't want to just open the door for them and turn your back. You want to say you're taking the best aspects to make the best performing system for the facility and putting that into that specification. So it's got both aspects, the prescriptive and the performance. Elements. That's right. But and the, the intent obviously in all this is to provide a, a competitive procurement method with in the in the end if all providers bid the same document then you should be able to get the same job from any one of two three five ten providers and we'll talk about that in a minute about what happens when 
people take exceptions and when they basically don't do a complete job of uh, reading and or internalizing the specification or the procurement document before they bid. That will be an interesting conversation that we have. So could you just cover for the listeners maybe that don't know or they're they're new to the industry, what like break down the three spec sections for me. Like and we talked about it. We have general products and execution slash installation. And what might go into each section? I mean, I, they're pretty obvious if you look at right. it, I would say. But if you could elaborate a little bit. Well, the general section is basically where the owner or consultant or both can they communicate their overarching intent for what will happen during the project, what will be removed, what will be replaced, what will be installed. And that will encompass the areas of work, the schedule for the project, the safety requirements, the applicable codes and standards, so that by reading the general uh, section, you get a you know, this is this is the Cliff Notes version of what the project should look like during the construction and when it's completed. I guess I from the jobs I've been on, it it it, it depends on the facility and if it's public or private. But th- those general sections can be, as a percentage of the spec, pretty cumbersome, depending on what the requirements are and the scheduling and what you can and can't do, and you know, labor requirements and so on and so forth. Well, they absolutely are, and the the general spec, and I've unfortunately had the opportunity to speak with many contractors slash providers during post-bid evaluations, during, even during projects. Well, where do you read that? It's in the general spec. It's in the general section. Oh, well, we, we think it's only, it doesn't refer to us. Well, if you're the prime contractor, it can't refer to anyone else. Yeah. <laughs> it, it's, it's pretty straightforward. Right. It is important. And, it, and one of the, the things that I would say is to spec writers out there that don't put anything in the spec that is irrelevant. And all, as always, when you're writing good technical documents, don't make things unclear. Try and be concise clear and only add what's relevant and i'll take a quick editorial tangent using cut and paste specifications is the kiss of death we've seen specifications uh, in procurement documents come out that name incorrect buildings incorrect addresses because they were cut and pasted and not completely reviewed and I, I have no issue with reusing portions of a spec but someone needs to review the spec line by line sentence by sentence to make sure that it's stating exactly what you want it to say and will deliver the system that the owner expects yeah yeah they can get very dangerous just cutting and pasting in <laughs> old spec sections i Agree completely. So we covered the general part of it, right? Uh, and again, another seemingly obvious what it is section, but the products. What what kind of language do you do you build into the the product section of a specification? Depending on the type of system, that's where we can put in the applicable standards, 
for instance, the need for BTL certification that the system needs to be current manufacturers, including not only hardware, but software, network performance. And to be able to do that, this designer needs to be fluent in current technologies, hardware, software, networking. We put in the end devices. And why do we do that? You know, there, there are very few firms that go down to the accuracy level of sensors. What's the minimum and the minimum calibrated accuracy, total accuracy of sensing devices, including hysteresis, linearity, and repeatability, which you have to, you have to be able to analyze that. And then even going further, depending on the criticality of the sensed uh, uh, where the sensor is and what it's sensing, whether it needs to have NIST traceability, is that important? And if so, why? So products, there is some, some portion of the product section that is performance related, but in general, a prescriptive spec for products, especially on the sensing devices, is, is a, a good thing. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. And then execution and installation, um, again, seemingly straightforward, but that's where you would, you would talk about the means and methods of the installation. What can be reused? What can't be reused? Conduit sizing, pull strings, uh, labeling, and so on and so forth in that portion. Correct. Yeah. I mean, that's a, a, I think a good summarization of the three portions of a specification, especially for a high performance open system. So I know we touched about it a, a couple minutes ago, but you know, what are some key elements that you always have to include in these open system specifications? Uh, obviously schematics, P and IDs, points lists, sequence of operations, anything else you have to add? No, uh, I, I would like to just expand on those for a minute, though, because typically we do not see P&ID documents in a procurement document, but it's my opinion, and we adhere to it pretty rigorously, that P&ID is a requirement and a, a basis for the expectations of what as-builts and submittals should look like, and it also removes uncertainty caused by contractor unfamiliarity with the site. Even though contractors are typically given the opportunity to walk through a site one, two, three times, the removal of uncertainty by providing a drawing can't be can't be overstated. The same thing is true with the points list. It provides more clarity so that the contractor knows exactly what needs to be provided. And it also gives the specifier an opportunity to to segregate or further illustrate what devices need to be replaced and what can be reused in that points list, which when we're trying to maintain budgets and not have an inundation of RFIs during the the bid or procurement process, using that points list as a mechanism for clarification of what's to to remain and be reused and what's to be replaced is is a very useful tool. And then as far as sequences go, it gives the contractor an idea as to exactly what kind of programming will be required, how extensive will it be, what do they need to include in their cost estimate, and how will it be verified in terms of by the commissioning agent or um, the owner's representative. Right. And our goal 
as a specifier is just to make it as clear and obvious as possible for the contractors bidding the job and building the job. So there is no ambiguity. So, you, you know, we want to be able to go in and say, look at, look at spec section, you know, 2.A2. This is right where it says you need to do this, or this should have been here. And um, I think that helps a lot. I've been on a lot of jobs where, you know, we have always been able to, to refer to a specification to back what we know we want and what we know the owner wants and needs to what the contractor needs to do and install. It's always, it's seemingly always clear and obvious for the most part. Yes, it might take some time to go through a larger specification to find that little point, but it's there and it's the contract. <laughs> I mean, right? Well, well and, and that is, so as, as specification writers, that is what it all comes down to is you're not just writing a specification, you're writing the, uh, by and large, the contract between owner and provider as to exactly what they need to do and how they need to do it. I've been in uh, quite a handful of meetings where you get a, a you know, a grumpy contractor per se rolling in thinking they know what they know and they they don't need to do that and it's it's really hard to argue when the sentence is right there in front of you in the spec that you bid saying you need to do that so it helps taking the time to put the effort in and making it as clear and obvious as possible in a spec with prescriptive and performance portions uh, it makes it very beneficial down the road it seems like. Uh, yeah, I agree. So I know we've covered this in some previous conversations as well, but another big part that I've found you do and we do is not only specifying what a system should do but or must do, but also what a system must not do. I don't know if you want to elaborate on that a little bit. Well, uh- now there are, there are specific cases, for instance, where in highly secure facilities, military facilities, etc., that require systems to be 100% segregated, meaning no software as a service, meaning no uh, outside connections, etc., and it has become increasingly commonplace for manufacturers to provide software as a service, whether it be for actual HMI interface or it be for dashboarding or it be for diagnostics or it be for remote commissioning, uh, whatever it is. And we've actually run up against that in a few different places where folks are trying to provide software as a service, for instance, uh, on a dashboard. Uh, when it was specifically eliminated, you, that was it was very clear in uh, multiple paragraphs that software as a service wasn't allowed and uh, it ended up causing uh, the contractor some heartburn on a couple of different jobs. The same thing with tunneling proprietary communications protocols on an open network. We end up seeing any of the big manufacturers try and tunnel proprietary network along with BACnet using their proprietary carrier to do most of the heavy lifting and the BACnet to serve up points basically to show that they are a a BACnet or open system compliant system. And how do you, how do you get around that? Well, 
basically that goes to the prescriptive part of the spec where we say all proprietary protocols will be identified through the use of a network analyzer and disabled before any commissioning can start. Well, that is a bad day if you're using a proprietary network to share data between controllers, et cetera, and you haven't read the spec in its entirety and the day, the week, the month comes for commissioning and the, net, the guy with the network analyzer shows up, puts it on the network and hey, you need to disable all this before we can do any commissioning. And oh, by the way, none of our uh, chill water reset programs will work anymore because we're using a proprietary network to send valve positions back to the global controller. It happens. But at the same time, if you really want an open system, it's imperative that the open protocol be the primary communications um, or, or ideally the only communications protocol running on the network. Yeah. And obviously utilizing the spec, you can make that. So it is the case. So it's huge, huge to have the specification written, take the time, write it properly, know what you want and know what's available and, you know, go from there. Obviously you need to be able to identify what the system can do, but also what it cannot do to prevent those issues where uh, con- uh, installer contractor to come in and, and utilize, like you said, uh, tunneling protocols, proprietary protocols, because on the commissioning day, we'll find it. And it's, if it's clear and obvious in the spec that you cannot do it, it's a bad day. So let's talk a little bit about awarding a contract, right? So we write our spec, our high performance open system specification, put it out to bid, you know, handful of contractors bid, the low bidder comes through and they're awarded it. What happens next? Well, I I would say before they're awarded it, there needs to be a post bid review. Uh, Basically, Anna, when a bid submitted on the bid form, there's typically a space on the bid form asking if any exceptions are taken to the specification. That gives the contractor the opportunity to say, this paragraph, this section, this subsection, this statement uh, can't do it, or we plan to do it another way, etc. If those exceptions aren't taken, then the spec document, as it, it's written, uh, becomes part of the contract language. If, if the exceptions are taken, they're reviewed by the owner, owner's rep, and may be accepted or may be cause for rejection of a bid as non-conforming in a public world, but in the private world, usually they're a a basis for negotiation during the post-bid review. So I personally sat in many, many post-bid reviews where contractors have taken one or more exceptions, and sometimes, you know, those exceptions are, give me a laugh, and sometimes uh, they give me heartburn. There have been cases we've we've put together some pretty significant dashboard specifications and some procured some very large help customers procure some very large energy or performance dashboards with specific uh, data analytics embedded you know statistical analysis etc and have had multiple fortune 100 companies come to us and say well that's not the way we do dashboards and basically ignored the spec and shown us a 
how they do it, which did not include many, many, many of the performance requirements of the data analysis that were specified and just say that's what we plan to do. Well, that is not acceptable and in general has been cause for elimination or exclusion of specific contractors because they ignore the spec, did not take any exceptions, and then said, by the way, this is how we plan to do it. So evaluating contractors, it's imperative that not only are you evaluating hardware, you're not just buying a manufacturer, but you're also evaluating the reputation and experience of the installing company. Are they within reasonable distance if an on-site service call is required? Do they have 24-hour monitoring available for monitoring critical systems? Do they have qualified technicians? What's the level of turnover of those technicians? Are, are they there for the long haul or are they a startup? And I have obviously no axe to grind with startups because many years ago we were one, but the bottom line is the reputation and experience of the individuals and of the installing company are tantamount and really almost secondary to the hardware performance because qualified experienced folks can make mediocre hardware do some pretty amazing things. Yeah, that makes sense. So I'll leave us with one, one more question for you to answer. Obviously when going back, you know, to the beginning of this podcast, we talked about generating budget and doing our field survey. When you go into the bids come in with their numbers, you have a, we make a budget. So we, we have an understanding of about what it should cost all in insulation included, right? What if the, the award, the winning or the low bid, right? They didn't win it yet. What if the low bid is, is substantially lower than the budget you, we generated. And I assume that happens it can happen probably quite often. What what do you do with that? Where do you go from there? That's a good question, and it has happened. And I think that, first of all, you want the, the number to be under the budget, but we've had numbers that come in that are 30% of the budget. So then it's time to basically get out your contractor's hat and say, okay, what? and during the post-bid, interview have a very strong conversation with very specific questions as to how and why what percentage of the project is installation and those those metrics of percentages of the projects which which are labor material installation programming startup and training they don't vary substantially manufacturer to manufacturer yes everybody can do a little bit better. Some have better automated engineering tools. Some have a better understanding of the building because it may be a building that they've worked in over over time. But in general, there's no real magic pill or powder that can let somebody be half the price of everybody else without making a mistake. That's called the the winner's curse. You know, day one, you're celebrating, oh, we got the job. And day two, you're saying, oh, crap, we got the job. So nobody, no owner wants to take time and high five and celebrate that, oh, they're half the budget and everybody else was within 15% on, you know, all the other bidders were at 15%. The reality is they made a mistake and, and it's 
imperative that if that's the case, that you help them find a way to A, identify a mistake early on, and B, uh, allow them to recuse themselves from the bid. Otherwise, you end up with the perverse incentive of making the contractor lose money. They won't be happy about that. And you've almost 100% eliminated your possibility of getting a high-performance system because every opportunity will be taken for them to cut a corner to basically try and manage to the budget, which if the budget's unrealistic, you can try and manage to it, but you can't build the same job and expect that a, a company will you know, eat the cost just because you want them to. And, and in some cases, it's meant forfeiture of a bid bond. And there are cases where that's absolutely the only viable alternative for a, a contractor who's bid a job that's that low, they're that low on the job. I think with that, Mark, we'll wrap this podcast up. I know we covered quite a bit with specifying high performance open systems, went through, you know, writing a spec, the steps are required to, to get to, you know, writing the specification, where to start, what the end goal is, what to include, what to not include, and so on. And guys, stay tuned for our next episode. We'll be discussing uh, BMS systems and high-level integrations. So that'll be coming out in the next week or so. Thanks a lot for your time and have a great day.